Our reading today is from Acts chapter 20 and chapter 21, starting in verse 36. This is Paul's farewell to the elders at Ephesus. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and the next day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board that ship and sailed and returned home. We had finished the voyage from Tyre. We arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I'm Pastor Jeff. It's uh, good to see you all here today. I was just thinking earlier, uh, I would have loved to have an excuse to uh, jump up out of worship by having a black BMW with the trunk open, but I'm still here. Uh, Last week, we talked about uh, how our habits shape our hearts, and yet we get to choose our habits and how we will be shaped. But that's important because we can't just think our way into change, into becoming different people. Now, I mentioned the staff and elders have been reading this great book by James K.A. Smith, You Are What You Love. And in it, Smith talks about how he knew that he needed to lose weight, he needed to eat better, he needed to exercise. But it wasn't until he wanted to be a different person that he started to take on habits that would shape him that way. He said, I had to commit myself to practices that I didn't want to do. I began to exercise, not because I enjoyed it, but because I knew it would be good for me. And for some unknown reason, I decided that running is the exercise that I would take up. Now, we live kind of on a little bit of a hill near a river, and so the first half of the run going downhill was easy. Somehow it had not occurred to me that I would have to run back up that same hill to get home. And he said, for the first few days, my return was uh, more of a hobble mixed with a waddle. And uh, each day, my wife would ask me, did you enjoy your run? And she, uh, and she would hear me say, not for a second. And then one day, my wife asked me the question, and I surprised myself by saying, yeah, that felt good. Eventually, Smith said, I realized I wanted to run. 
By submitting myself to the exercise regimen, I've become a different person. Now, here's where I need to correct another statement from this pulpit made recently, and it's one of mine. Uh, A few people have uh, very gently and graciously teased me because it seems like the only time I talk about running is in a negative context. (laughs) And uh, that's because I'm not a runner, uh, but that is not exactly an encouragement to the runners here, right? Listen, running is a good thing. And like any good thing, of course, it can get out of balance in our lives. But, but ultimately, it's, it's a good, it's a healthy discipline. And my pastor friend Gene that I mentioned last week and, and James K. Smith and other people, they have become better persons through the discipline of running and through exercise. So no more jokes about running for me, at least not just being a negative thing. Smith goes on to say he realized that he needed discipline, but more than that, he needed a community. He needed people around him who would encourage him, who would hold him accountable, who would help him grow in shaping himself into the person that he wanted to become. He joined Weight Watchers, and so he became part of a group of people that was designed to help him achieve his goals. And every week, you have to go in and weigh yourself. And there's a moment of truth where everyone in the group is going to find out whether or not you've stuck with the discipline or not. He had people that were going to get in his face and challenge him if they caught him cheating on his diet. And he had to let others come alongside him to shape his habits, to hold him accountable, and to keep him moving forward. Just like I need a community to graciously tell me to uh, stop only talking about running in a negative way. Now, all of us have experienced that in some ways, right? If you played sports, you've been on a team, you've had coaches, you've had teammates who have encouraged you, pushed you, gotten in your face, held your arms up. If you play a musical instrument, if you've sung in a choir, you've had... Uh, directors, teachers, other musicians who help you get better, who work with you, who, who encourage you along the way. Maybe you're in a professional network, you're, you're in a mom's play group, maybe you're in a writer's workshop, some kind of an online community, some kind of a small group that hopefully the people there are there to help spur you on to become better at whatever it is that that you're passionate about, that that group is aligned around. And that's true in our faith, isn't it, right? I mean, we grow through private devotion and Bible study and prayer and music and conferences and all that. But we never grow to what God intends us to be on our own, by ourselves. Community is essential for all of us, for every believer, because it's only with regular, deep connection, interaction with other people that can help us see our faults, can help us see our sins, that, that we can confess and receive forgiveness, that, that we extend and experience grace from one another. We sharpen others, and we are sharpened in the process. And many of the disciplines of our faith can't even be practiced alone, like confession or Worship or service or submission. The body of Christ, Smith says, is the community where God invites us to renew our loves, to reorient our desires, to retrain our appetites. And we have to be committed to that ourselves, but we never do it alone, on our own. The Bible says that 
when we experience the grace of God in a saving way through Jesus Christ, that brings us automatically into a new community, a new family. But as one writer puts it, community is maybe the most overpromised and underdelivered aspect of the church today. A lot of people have come into the church expecting to find connection and, and life and encouragement. And, and yes, we find that, but we also find discouragement and struggle and, and hurt and disappointment. Because community is more than just being nice to one another. It's more than just being pleasant on Sunday morning. It, it's, it isn't just about punching cookies on Fellowship Hall. It isn't just about a, a bus tour with the Sunday school class. It isn't just about taking casseroles to someone, even though those are good things to do. So today, I'd like us to not talk so much about fellowship or, or about community, but about a, a different but related concept, that the gospel of Jesus Christ creates and calls us into spiritual friendship, intentional Christian friendship with one another. C.S. Lewis writes in The Four Loves, To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. And to those ancient followers of Jesus, that made perfect sense to them because they could see how real spiritual friendship, Christian friendship, is the ultimate fulfillment of all of those desires, all those virtues, all the good that the world around them could see. And I want to show us in this strange little travel narrative that that's what's going on. If you haven't already, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, or if you want to grab one of those black Bibles in the seat in front of you, it's on page 1105. And as you turn there, I'll uh, remind us just briefly that uh, we've started posting uh, discussion, reflection questions from the messages each week on our website. Uh, so when you go home today, those should be available for you to use in small group, to, to use in getting together with friends, or, or maybe even your own uh, private uh, study time and application. But we're continuing in this series where we're looking at what we believe it means for us here at Faith to be disciples of Jesus Christ and the kind of disciples that God is shaping us to be. And this story in Acts 20 is all about friendship, ultimately. It's not just a travel story. And, and in it, we're going to see Three principles of spiritual friendship. So let's dig into that. First is, maybe sounds obvious, but it's a reminder we need. We need spiritual friendship. We need, we need meaningful spiritual friendships. Now, something important is going on in Paul's life. Up to this point, you know, there's all the stories of, you know, the council in Jerusalem and missionary journeys and Paul's going here and going there and he's in charge of his own life and, you know, a lot is happening through him. But starting here, everything changes because God has told him a little earlier in chapter 20 through the Spirit that he's going to go to Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested, where he's going to be imprisoned, and his life is heading towards an end. And from this point forward in Paul's life, it's not freedom and ministry impact. It's just one difficult, crushing, disappointing trial after another. False imprisonment, unjust trial. His life is endangered by a plot from other religious opponents, and he's, he's wrongly imprisoned. And, and what does he do 
in all that. We see here Paul starts to spend an enormous amount of time with his friends. Look, I mean, everywhere that he's going, he's surrounded by friends. Did, did you catch that? I mean, these, the group of leaders from the church in Ephesus, and then, and then people in Tyre, and people in Ptolemais, and Caesarea, and, and on and on. He, he gathers the elders of the church with him, and they're there on the beach and to send him off, and he's just spending hours with them, pouring out his heart and praying for them, and they're weeping together and discussing things, and he seeks out friends in, in churches in places that he's never even been to before. He's, he's just soaking in friendship. So, so what is that telling us? I think it's at least telling us to need and to want deep spiritual friendships is not a sign of immaturity. It's a sign of maturity. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a, it's a sign of strength and wholeness to need other people. You think back to creation. When, when God creates Adam, then something weird kind of stands out in that narrative. Sin enters the picture in chapter 3, right, where everything goes wrong. Up until that point, everything has been good. God says, it's good, it's good, it's good. But before sin enters the picture, one thing is not good, God says. It is not good for man to be alone. And that tells us something significant. Before sin comes in the world, we still need people. The longing for friends, Pastor Tim Keller says, is the one ache that is not the result of sin. The longing for friends is the one ache that is not the result of sin. Every other Longing, every other emptiness, illness, hunger, shame, guilt, regret, lack of meaning, all of it comes from sin. But God made us so that we cannot even enjoy paradise by ourselves. We can't enjoy it unless we have friends with us. Adam is in a perfect place, in a perfect relationship with God, and yet there's still an emptiness there that is only going to be filled by human companionship. Listen, if you are lonely, if you, if you want more friends, if you want deeper friends, closer friends, that doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It means there's something right with you. Because you're not a machine, you're not a robot, you're not a tree, you're not a rock. You're created for friendship because you're made in the image of God. And yet, some of us, I think, have learned or we are learning not to want or need or seek out friendship. And, and there's a number of reasons why. One is just transitions. I mean, you know, if you live in a good-sized city like Indianapolis, over time, people are going to come and people are going to go. And, and we say goodbye to the Vaselis and the Linquists and others. And and there's a temptation to say, man, I just, I don't want to get started again. And some of that comes with age too, right? You realize that friendship takes time and it's an investment. And, and you know, there's a temptation to just say, man, I just, I don't want to put myself out there. I, I don't want to invest the time. I don't want to get hurt again. I know somebody else is going to leave or, or maybe just over the years, you know, there's this buildup of hurt and disappointment in relationship. And, and, and it can lead us to say, you know, it's, it's not worth it. And another reason is technology, right? I mean, the internet allows us to retreat into our homes and fill up our screens and our time with all the information and all the entertainment that we could ever ask for. 
and nobody, almost nobody, you know, just outwardly says, I'm not going to need people anymore. But maybe there are ways that we're actually doing that, that we're actually saying that with our lives. And, and, if, and if that's true, I want to plead with you not to do that. It's wrong. It's hurtful. It's anti-Christian. Because the Apostle Paul is not the only strong, important person who needs friends. I mean, there was another one even greater, even stronger than Paul who needed friends. And he had 12 of them. And he walked with them, went every, everywhere with them, and, and poured out his heart to them. And, and they never understood him. They constantly let him down. They never got what he was trying to do. And yet, you read through the New Testament, you see in the Gospels, Jesus is constantly still pouring out his heart to these people. I mean, Jesus is saying, oh, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. I long for you. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so that my joy would be complete in you. I want you to see the joy that I have. I want you to have it. Jesus is, is in the garden saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus is constantly sharing his heart with his friends. And, and so if you're tempted to think, you know, it's not worth it. I'm not going to put myself out there. I'm not going to make myself vulnerable. I'm going to keep my distance. If you are afraid of needing people, of opening yourself up. The less you want friends, the less like Jesus you are. I, I ran across this uh, one-liner recently from uh, a comedian. The most unbelievable part of the Bible is a 32-year-old man with 12 close friends. We chuckle at that, right? Why do we laugh at that? What does it say about our culture? What does it say about us? That that just seems ridiculous and impossible and crazy and laughable. We need, we need real meaningful friendships because we're made for it. But the good news then, secondly, is that, that we receive those kinds of friendships. It's not something we produce in ourselves. Did you notice this in this passage, in chapter 21, verse 4, they they sailed to Syria, they land at Tyre, where the ship unloads its cargo, and they sought out the disciples there, and we stayed with them for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, there's no record in the New Testament that Paul has ever been to this city before, so he, he does not know these people, and yet they are perfectly comfortable coming up to him and saying, Paul, you're wrong, and you don't know what you're doing. And, and the amazing thing, they get in his business, and Paul does not say, how dare you? Do, do you know who you're talking to? I mean, you do know I wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. I think I can handle this. No, he, he doesn't say that. I mean, the, the point is, look, there are people that you have no natural affinity with, but if you both love Jesus Christ, there is an automatic bond, there is a connection that you did not create. C.S. Lewis reflects on this again in The Four Loves. He says, the very essence of friendship is not to look at each other, but to look together at something else. What makes you a friend is not that you are looking at each other saying, do you like me or be my friend? What makes you a friend is that you are looking together at something else that you both admire. 
The essence of friendship is not to say, do, do you love me, but do you love the beauty that I love? Do you respond to the truth that my heart resonates with? There has to be some common passion, some common interest, some common adoration. I mean, we see it in sports all the time, right? That's a real obvious one in our culture. I mean, people come together across racial lines and ethnic lines and class distinctions to cheer on the Cubs or, or the Eagles or, you know, the local high school team or, or whatever it is. And that is pointing us to Christ, the one who is ultimately worthy of worship and adoration, the one who ultimately brings people together across all kinds of boundaries and distinctions. Paul kneels down in prayer in Ephesus, and he kneels down in prayer again with, with these people in Caesarea, and that's even a, a physical picture of what spiritual friendship is. We are kneeling down together, worshiping the same God, and that unites us. We're adoring the same Savior. We're, it pulls us together in a unique way. Look at our, look at our clothes for example, all of us here are wearing uniforms of a sort, right? I mean, notice, just, I mean, look around. Look how, how people are dressed, right? There's suburban uniforms. There's downtown uniforms. There's um, business corporate dress. There's creative casual. There's urban street cool and preppies and blue-collar working clothes. Because we all identify with something that, that's bigger than ourselves, that, that we're a part of, Right? Joey and I were at a pastor's leadership conference this last week, uh, and one of the moderators uh, was from a southern state with a strong football culture. Now, he had recently retired from full-time ministry and still part of the church, um, and mentioned that the guy who was his successor in the church uh, was from Wisconsin. And the retired guy shared that he'd been getting more than a few calls from people in the congregation asking him, when is this new guy going to stop talking about the Wisconsin Badgers? Because that's not their culture, right? Now, okay, sure, absolutely, part of ministry, part of following Jesus is saying, I become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. So just part of following Jesus is adapting ourselves to the culture and the customs of the place where we find ourselves because our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. But at the same time, these people were not so subtly saying, I don't know that I can worship, I don't know that I can follow the leadership of a guy who talks about a football team that I'm not interested in. When Christ comes into your life, do you know what happens? If, if you're a Southern football fan, you don't stop rooting for SEC teams, right? You, but you're not kneeling before the SEC any longer. You're kneeling before Jesus. And, and football becomes secondary in priority. And, and that makes you a brother or sister with, with a Badger fan or with someone who doesn't even like football. But because they love Jesus and they're kneeling down with him, kneeling down with you together before him. I, I'm going I'm to like put my neck in a noose here a little bit, could we worship together with Patriots fans? If they love Jesus. I know, you're probably saying that it can't even, those two things can't coexist, right? Non-overlapping circles. What if, what if there's a Patriots fan who really loves Jesus? Can I worship with that person and love Jesus together with him? 
See, you're, you're a Christian first, and you are anything else second. It doesn't matter who your ancestors were. It doesn't matter what school you went to or what kind of a job you have or how much money you make. It doesn't matter whether you fought in Vietnam or whether you were a protester, whether you're married, divorced, single, never married, widowed. Christ is first. And here's a test of whether we really have experienced God's grace in a transforming way. You find yourself coming to love people whom you otherwise would never have wanted to even be around because you just don't have anything in common with them. But now you love them and you can be friends with them because you share Jesus together. Is that happening to you? Do you have friends like that in your life? If it isn't happening to you, if you don't have friends like that in your life, maybe it's worth reflecting what that's saying about our priorities. Because friendships come from what we are in love with. Friendships are built off what we adore and worship. And that's why some of us have such narrow friendships and why some of us have so few friends. Again, Lewis in The Four Loves puts it this way, people who simply want friends can never make any because the very condition for having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. That we love something else besides having a friend. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere will have no fellow travelers. And as Christians, we are on a journey somewhere towards Jesus, towards his life working out in us, towards eternity with him. Maybe we don't have more friends because our friendship with God isn't very important to us. We're we're not kneeling before him in awe. His love is not overwhelming us. Our hearts aren't filled with adoration and amazement at him. Did you ever notice there there are just some people that others seem seem to be drawn to? I'm not talking about natural charisma, but... There are some people that others are drawn to because there's a grace, there's a love, there's a peace, there's a joy, there's a hope, there's a kindness in them because because they're reflecting Jesus in their lives. Make friendship with God more important than friendship with others. Get close to God and you will be a better friend. And people will be drawn to you because they'll see more of Jesus in you. Spiritual friendship is something we receive. We receive spiritual friendship. But that leads us into the last point here, that it's also something we have to work at. We receive spiritual friendship, but we have to work at spiritual friendship. Because, again, if you look back in this passage, you'll see that these friendships take a tremendous amount of investment of our lives and our time and our priority and all kinds of things. I mean, God gives us, the gospel gives us the, the raw ingredients, right? If you're a a painter, if you're a musician, if you're a writer, God gives you the canvas and the paints. God gives you the notes and the instrument. God gives you the paper and the pencil, but you have to actually sit down and work at it. It doesn't just happen. Ephesians 4 says, maintain the spirit of unity through the bond of peace. See, God is not saying create the spirit of unity. 
He's saying maintain it. You receive it. You don't earn it. You don't produce it. But you have to steward it. It's a gift that God gives, but we have to manage it and develop it and grow in it. And what that looks like we see in this passage. Some of you are familiar with the Greek word koine. It's, it's the root for fellowship, koinonia. It, it, it has this sense of shared or in common. Koine Greek in Bible times was the common Greek that was shared among everyone. Koine means to share. If you want true Christian fellowship, that involves sharing ourselves with other people. Look at, look at how this works here. I mean, first of all, they share their feelings. Look back in chapter 20. They pray together. There was weeping on the part of everyone. They embraced Paul. They, they kissed him. They, they poured out their sorrow together. Guys, guys, you don't have to kiss. But if we're going to have real friendships, we have to share our hearts with each other. We have to share what we're actually feeling. We have to fight this stupid American cultural model that says real men, you know, are tough and we never shed a tear and we don't let anyone get close and we're all stoic. And the, the man who wrote the majority of the Psalms who had a heart that loved God, yeah, he was a warrior and he was strong, but he wept and he danced and he cried and he prayed and he lamented and he shouted for joy. And, and he danced in a linen ephod because he didn't care what his scornful wife thought. He poured out his heart. We have to share our feelings with one another. And, and real friendships share their stuff. They share their things. I mean, look at how often Paul is just living in other people's houses. Sometimes people he doesn't even know before. He just shows up in Tyre with people he's never met. And he's staying with them, right? That's That's hospitality. We open up our homes, we feed one another. We can't be friends unless we share our things that God has entrusted to us. And, and then they share their faith. I mean, again, look back at this. They're, they're talking about the Lord. They're praying together. They're exhorting and encouraging one another. They're talking about the gospel with each other. Hebrews 3 says, Encourage or exhort one another daily so that none of you will be deceived by sin. And have hearts that are hardened. We have to have relationships where we preach the gospel to one another. Where, where we speak the truth and love to one another. Or we will be deceived. And our hearts will become hardened and embittered. And unforgiving. We warn about temptation. We point each other to Jesus. We speak the truth and love to each other. That's what real Christian friends do. And they share their decisions even. But back in chapter 20, Paul says he has been told by the Spirit that he's going to go to Jerusalem to be imprisoned, to be arrested, and, and even to head towards death. In chapter 21, these believers argue with him about it. I mean, we saw that in entire in verse 4, these people who don't know him. Then he gets to Caesarea, to people who do know him in verse 8. And they prophesy again. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem are going to bind the man who owns this belt that Paul is wearing and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. And we urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul says, why are you doing this? I know that God has called me to go there. 
And he would not be dissuaded, and and we said the Lord's will be done. Christian friendship is open to the Spirit's guidance in one another's lives. There's no unilateral decision-making. Real Christian friendship means we're speaking to each other. We let people get in our business. We let people challenge us. We've got to speak. We've got to listen. We share decisions with each other because we're not independent owner-operators. And finally, did, did you notice how often the word we shows up in this passage? Who is this we? I mean, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm probably going to be executed and, and die for Jesus. But Paul's not the one writing this. Luke is the one writing this. And Luke is saying, we left to go to Jerusalem. Why would you, where does that come from, right? Like, okay, your friend's telling you, you know, God says I'm going to Jerusalem to be imprisoned and possibly die. And and Luke says, hey, let me get in on that. I mean, who does that? What would make somebody do something like that? Especially if you're not even sure that Paul knows what he's talking about, right? Because that's friendship. Because that's what Jesus is like, right? Right? An old Christian writer talked about the difference between worldly friendship and spiritual friendship. He says in in worldly friendship, you love someone because they make you feel good about yourself, because it's an important person, because they listen to you, they validate you, they, they approve you, they listen to you. But then they stop listening to you, they stop agreeing with you, they stop making you feel good about yourself, they stop needing you, or they become a burden. And this old medieval Christian writer says, if you say, that's it, I'm done with you, and you walk away, you never loved them in the first place. You loved what you were getting from them. You were using them, not loving them. A friend shares life. A friend is there through thick and thin because that's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus does. David Kasali uh, was leading a successful ministry in Kenya, as, as Joey reminded us at uh, Nairobi Evangelical School of Theology, when he, when he sensed a call to return to his own war-torn country of Congo. I mean, just to put this in context, he had already lost a brother and a sister and had a cousin just brutally, brutally murdered in the most horrible way possible. And, and so he's going back to a country that he knows is going to put his own life in danger. Can you imagine how, how difficult, how painful something like that would be to do? But he did it because he believed that God was calling him to go back and help raise up a new generation of leaders. Not, not like the old colonial leaders that said, I'm in charge, so I'm the master. But Christian leaders who would say, we are here as servants. They would be men and women who who would help rebuild the country so that it would reflect more of God's justice and mercy and grace and peace and and wholeness. And David shared an African proverb uh, that expresses it. And and I, you know, all I have is this dumb American accent, so I I can't do it justice. But um, imagine hearing David say it in his accent. An African proverb, I am because we are. I am because we are. That's the heart of the gospel, isn't it? I am because the Father, Son, and Spirit are. Because He is God. The three persons and one God together have given me life, 
have made this world, have, have made us the way that we are? What is the purpose of creation? What's the purpose of redemption? What's the purpose of everything that God has done? To make us friends with him. And that that friendship would spill out over to others. Salvation. Creation is about making us God's friends. Salvation is about remaking us as God's friend. And glory and eternity is going to be about being God's friends forever in his presence with one another. Most of all about enjoying Jesus as the one true ultimate friend. Because life, reality, our faith is about friendship. Some of you have a friendship to repair. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want to suggest this is the time to do it. Some of you know that you've done something wrong. You've hurt a friend. You need to swallow your pride and go to someone and make the friendship up. Jesus has this amazing way of, of just saying hard things so graciously and directly. He says, you know, if, if you're coming to the altar to present your gift and you know that your brother has something against you, first go and be reconciled and then come and worship. Maybe, maybe that means you don't take the Lord's Supper until you reconcile with that friend, until you make it right. You, you abstain so that you could actually strengthen your heart for that friend. Because you know it's only because of Jesus' friendship to you that you are God's friend and you're now able to be friends with that person. You have a friendship to repair. Do that. Some of you need to get rid of hurt feelings and unforgiveness and bitterness. Our friendships are supposed to be about seeking Jesus together, not how good have you been to me and what am I getting out of this? Commit to get rid of the, the self-focus and the self-consciousness and the self-pity. We are full because Jesus is our friend. And I don't need other people's validation and approval now. Maybe you take the supper and, and, and you say, this is refocusing my friendship on Jesus so that I can be a better friend to others. Some of you who are married, maybe you need to do some repair in your relationship. Maybe you need to say, God, help me know how to make my spouse my, my friend again, or, or maybe even for the first time. Or some of you have someone in your life, you're in a relationship, and, and honestly, it's easy to ignore friendship with brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't married. And I've got my relationship, and the single people can you know, figure it out for themselves. Good luck. They can go to the singles group. That's not church. We are family. We are friends together. Make this Lord's Supper about friendship. Friendship with Christ. It would flow over into friendship with each other. Joe, would you come and lead us in worshiping around the table together?